Football MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's industry seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blenzall, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia, 612 Suspension, and Fly Racing. Welcome to Industry Seating. It is Sunday afternoon. My name is Jason Thomas, and I will be your host today. Good news is we're going to give away a Formula helmet today. That's pretty exciting. But there's really no racing still to talk about. As you all know, we are just under two weeks away from the first Lucas Oil Pro Motocross race at Loretta Lens, which all the amateurs start their racing week tomorrow. And then we are basically a week away from the MXGP series starting again in Latvia. So racing is on the horizon. All of you who don't like these Q&A podcasts, I'm sorry. That's all we have right now. And it gives me a chance to engage with all of you. And I've been trying to mix up some prizes in here as well. Really just trying to fill the time because this this year has been so weird, right? And that, that applies to every walk of life. But normally we'd be in the midst of a, an outdoor championship. We would have, basically, we'd, we'd only have a few rounds left. In the typical season, I would just be getting home from the Washougal round on a normal schedule today, and we'd have, what, three or four left before we wrap this thing up at Ironman. But as we all know, that schedule's all been thrown on its ear, and we haven't even gotten started yet. There are a lot of storylines that still have to play out, and it's anybody's guess as to how this will go. Will we get every race in that we planned? Will there be, you know, state regulation that causes more issues? Uh, let's, let's hope not. Let's hope we get a similar pattern to we got what we got in Salt Lake where everything goes to plan and people can come and go. And there isn't a a huge outbreak in a, in a given state and just all the bad things that you can imagine happening to this series. Let's hope we can avoid them because man, just as a fan, I want to, I want to see racing, right? It's fine. Like today, you know, I can find things to watch on TV and go ride my bicycle. And sure, there are lots of things to do outside, but deep down, I want sports back, which we're getting some of that. And I want racing back. Um, so I'm, I'm counting down the days I did. I did watch formula one this morning, which is pretty fun. It's not my, you know, my favorite sport by any means, but I do enjoy it. And it gets that racing, feeling going right the the adrenaline and and peaks somewhat of a racing interest moto gp is is almost back and i'm going to talk about bruno a little bit next weekend which i think that's really the moral of 2020 is it's never going to be perfect i think i'm the king of well this is as good as we can possibly ask for and expecting it to be just like 2019 where everything is exactly how you'd want it i just don't think we're we're going to get any of that this year. Maybe 2021, let's be optimistic and, and hope that it's certainly more normal than right now. But I think compromise is just the name of the game and being being willing to accept levels of compromise and still remaining happy and optimistic and finding satisfaction out of that compromise is a key to 
I think just not going crazy because if you sit back and look at how disruptive 2020 has been on a sports level, on a financial level, on a business level, on a medical level, on every level, it would be very easy to just freak out and just start yelling. You know, I'm in a room by myself and just start yelling, freaking out because everything that you enjoy and your financial stability and worries about people, you know, getting sick or yourself getting sick, there is just so much to be anxious about. And I'm sure those that suffer from anxiety are having a hell of a year. I can't even imagine how difficult this, all of these factors have been just dealing with coronavirus. But I feel like for Moto fans, it's going to get better very soon, right? Less than two weeks and, and we get Moto back in America. Just this coming weekend, we get racing in Latvia. So I guess if you're looking as better or worse, it's about to get a lot better for a lot of us. And I'm going to travel a little bit. I will not be at the first round at Loretta Lens on August 15th. I will be sitting right here doing this podcast. And I should mention, while we're getting started, uh, the Patreon portion of Industry Seating, which you can find by going to patreon.com slash industry seating. Every Saturday morning, there will be an insight podcast given about that day's racing, what I expect to see, rumors I've heard that week, and fantasy advice, literally everything that I could give you a little bit of insight on that might help your racing day or make it a little bit more interesting. I'm going to go over just on the Patreon site. So that will be a separate podcast that's only available on Patreon. So you can reach out to me for more information on that. But speaking as to my schedule, I will then drive over to Washougal. It's about, I'm going to guess it's about six hours. I've actually never done the drive before, but just the way our company, Western Power Sports, is approaching airlines right now and flights. If I flew to Washougal and back, I would have to go ahead and quarantine. So I'm going to drive over there, drive back. Then I would be allowed to work in the office that next week leading up to Ironman. And then I will hop on the plane, fly to Ironman, attend that race, which should be fun. I will spend that week in between Ironman and Redbud visiting dealers in the Midwest, which should be cool. I, I really missed that part of my job is getting out and seeing all of the new fly racing products hit the shelves. It's, it's really good engagement, good feedback, especially so early in the process. And then I will be in the, uh, South Bend area, of course, for the next two rounds at Redbud. And if you haven't heard, there was a small schedule change there. So originally the, the first schedule that came out, Redbud was going to be Saturday and Tuesday. And keep in mind, that's Labor Day weekend. They have made a small adjustment there, and now it will be on Friday and Monday. So Friday, then the amateur portion of the weekend will go on on Saturday and Sunday. And then the next round of the Lucas Oil Pro Motocross will go on actually on Labor Day on that Monday. So if you're making plans, if you're taking time off or any of those things, just Wanted to update there. Some of you may not have seen it yet because it honestly hasn't been publicized all that much. I've seen it a couple of places, but again, I'm really plugged into the, these type things. So just want to do my part to, uh, to share that message because it is a pretty significant change if you are taking vacation days or, or the like. So as for this episode, it's going to be more Q and a, I will be giving away a fly racing formula helmet and I have already decided who it's going to, which we will get to. I do want to thank the sponsor of this podcast really quickly. First off, Pirelli Tires. That was a pretty interesting Formula One race today for Pirelli Tires. The winner of the uh, of the race finished with a, a flat left front tire. And, you know, all those guys were running the soft 
Pirelli option and they were really pushing the envelope. Verstappen stopped the last lap to get new tires. Bottas had a flat. So you can see all those guys really pushing the edge of uh, durability with that soft tire. And then, uh, you know, obviously their motocross side of the things are about to kick off again. They are a dominating force in MXGP, and that will be displayed here very soon, actually coming up this next Saturday and Sunday. And then for their Lucas Oil Pro Motocross, guys like Joey Savacci will be back in action on Pirelli tires. So go check out their collection, PirelliMX.com. My recommendation is the 32 Midsoft. That's what I used when I raced. That's what I really think works the best in most conditions. Now, if you're riding a super hard pack track, it'll still work. You're probably just going to find that you start to, to uh, lose knobs and that's not awesome when you're buying tires. So just be mindful of that. Your performance will still be there, but anytime you use a mid soft, uh, appropriate tire on hard pack, the knobs start to chunk off and you'll just start seeing them tearing and ripping and then eventually coming off. And that's for every brand. That's not unique to any specific brand. That's just the way it goes. That's how the knobs are built. They're really tall and they just won't hold up to power being applied on a hard pack surface. Also want to thank works connection. If you go to at works connection on their Instagram or go to worksconnection.com, you can see their wide array of products and they have way more products than you would ever think of. I was actually looking on there a little bit earlier and they're off to a flying start in the Canadian motocross series. Works connection sponsored rider, Dylan Wright swept all three motos. So check that out. Go check out the pro launch start device. I think that's going to be the number one thing that can help your racing results is getting better starts. And there's no way better way to do it than them with the pro launch start device. I also want to thank Plum Creek funding. Now we've been talking about this for a few weeks, but 30 year fixed mortgage rates are under 3%. We've never ever in the history of America seen rates this low. Now the government's obviously pushing those rates low with, you know, on, on purpose, they're doing their part to help because they want to stimulate the economy. The great thing is, is that even if you own a house, maybe you've owned a house for 20 years, it still could be an opportunity for you to go do a refinance on your mortgage and save a ton of money. And that's the best part is you can ask questions and Zach will be willing to help. And, and I talk to Zach regularly and he has helped a lot of you out there. He actually just did a deal with Connor Fields to refinance an investment property he has and is going to save him a ton of money. So these are real life examples that are going on. Zach helped me with a refinance back in 2017. So check it out. Text him 720-212-4685 or you can reach out to him at Plum Creek Funding on his Instagram. I also want to thank Blenzall Oils and David Schloss and the team have been working hard to get Blenzall back in action. And Blenzall has been around forever, but what happens with a lot of these brands is, is, you know, ownership just gets complacent or, you know, things change hands and they just lose that, that market share that, you know, every brand is, is searching for. And when David took over, that was his biggest goal was to bring Blenzall back to the forefront. And, you know, many people out there have heard that Blenzall name, but maybe you haven't used Blenzall in years. Maybe it was a, it was a product that your dad used. Well, David wants to turn all that around and get people more involved and more aware of exactly what Blenzel has to offer. Their range is pretty wide. They offer things for two strokes, four strokes, chain loop, all the good stuff. And you can go on Blenzel.com and mix your case and get a mixed pint case and get 10% off for doing so. So go check that out at Blenzel is their Instagram too. And you can see all the athletes they're sponsoring and all the series 
that they're involved with. Also want to thank Fast Foundry. They are a tech solutions company. Whether you're a startup, you're an established company, I'm pretty sure that Fast Foundry can help you out. Go to fastfoundry.com, reach out to them, ask for Robert, see how that can help you modernize. A lot of automation now. And really, in today's business landscape, you either innovate or die. Coronavirus has changed everything, the way that businesses reach out and engage with customers. You really have to be on your game to be successful these days. So reach out to Fast Foundry and see how they can help you. I also want to thank Premier Vapor Blasting. Now go to at Premier Vapor Blasting and check out all of the great products that they have. And, and really what they're about is restoration. And they use this vapor blasting method to get there. Now, if you have an older bike, right? Say your bike's five years old, right? And you're looking at it and I'm like, man, this thing looks pretty hammered. Well, instead of going out and buying a new $10,000 motorcycle because you want something that looks pretty, how about you send your stuff to the guys down in Georgia at Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia and see what they can do for you. And if you go on their Instagram, you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about. They had a new, uh, I believe it was an engine cover on there today that they had taken care of. And honestly, the, it's pretty incredible. And I'm learning more and more about this process. It's a fairly, fairly new technology, but there is nothing else out there like it for restoration. So check out Premier Vapor Blasting. Now, if you have a motorcycle, which you probably do, if you have a side-by-side, it could be an adventure touring motorcycle. It could be a street bike. Could be a quad. If you have something in the power sports industry that you like to take out and have fun on, I bet that 612 suspension can help you out. Now, Ronnie and Ron Monk have been around forever, and his dad, Ronnie's dad, Ron, used to do my suspension way back in the day. And now Ronnie has a race tech affiliate company that is 612 suspension, and he is servicing everybody in Florida. He goes to all the local tracks, and everybody knows Ronnie because he's been around forever and ever. And that experience is really what makes the difference. He can talk moto with you. And, you know, where I really see a difference is when kids are learning, communicating what the bike is doing is a very difficult thing to learn because first you have to learn the lingo and then you have to be able to feel what the motorcycle is doing beneath you and then correctly communicate that to a suspension guy for them to help. Now, where Ronnie can come in is he raced, right? He's been around it his whole life. He raced at a pretty high level. So he can fill in the gaps on a lot of those things that maybe your child can't communicate, right? If, if the rebound's too slow, but your child doesn't really know how to communicate that, if he can just mimic what the bike's doing and how it's feeling, and as well, Ronnie can go out on the track and see what the motorcycle's doing, and he knows exactly what the problem is. And that's a really learned skill that doesn't come without experience. And that's a huge difference. And I learned that along the way. My dad was very good at that. And, uh, I, I think that's what Ronnie can, can bring to the table as well as just getting the most performance out of your side-by-side or adventure touring bike or street bike or whatever you may have real life example for me, my FZ09, the forks are pretty soft on it when I really try to ride it a little bit harder. So that's something that I need to talk to Ronnie about is improving the stiffness on my Yamaha FZ09. And if you've ever read a review on it, that's a pretty common complaint. So check out 612suspension.com at 612 suspension on Instagram. And last but not least, Fly Racing, we finally launched the 2021 line on Friday. Go to your local dealer, go to flyracing.com, go to your favorite e-tailer online and pick up some today. I'm very proud of this line. I I think that the team did a very good job and it's really gotten better and better every year. 
all the way through the line from premium level to entry level. I think that it has a look that you can be proud of and that you're going to want to wear. So check it out, flyracing.com. Now let's get into some of these questions. I'm not going to go to the, the gentleman that won this formula helmet right away. We'll get there. The first question I'm going to get to is Dr. Papa. And, and I've spoken with this gentleman many times, but he's asking about, we're going way back in the time machine to 2003. And if you remember back then, there was a pretty big effort made by the powers that be to get Supercross more mainstream. And they were getting us on to shows like Jay Leno. And this particular example is when they were on Jimmy Kimmel. Now, RC and James Stewart were on Jimmy Kimmel and they'd built a little track and they did the same thing for, with Jay Leno, but it back then it was uh, and that was a one with McGrath and Ricky Carmichael. Now this track, same type deal, just to show the crowd who had never seen it, what these guys were capable of. And it's, it wasn't anything huge. It would just basically have like a whoop section and a big double, right. Or a triple where they could see the, how far these guys jump and what they're capable of. And really it was a very basic introduction to the most casual of fans. And most of these people aren't fans at all. They have no idea what they're even watching, but that's what you're really going for. You're trying to introduce a new potential fan or customer to the sport that would otherwise never, ever see it. Now, Dr. Papa is, was, he, you can tell he was a little bummed at the way Jimmy Kimmel approached this because he really didn't give them the respect they deserve. He kind of is, is very, I don't know if nonchalant, but just kind of blows it off. And you can tell that Jimmy Kimmel didn't really respect what these guys were capable of or, or the talent that they have. And you're talking about generational talent when you're talking about Carmichael and Stewart. And he's kind of asking them stupid questions and being a bit whimsical about it, which, you know, part of his job, he's a comedian. He's trying to be funny. But at the same time, I think there was a place in there to really uncover the talent that these guys have and really talk about how serious that they take this sport. And if you followed Ricky Carmichael's career at all, you would know how serious that Ricky took it. And it, it drove every aspect of his life. I mean, there, there is no one on this earth. Okay. Maybe Lance Armstrong, I guess that was more committed to their craft than Ricky Carmichael was to supercross and motocross. And I think there was a place in there to share that, but instead Jimmy Kimmel went the route of, asking really dumb questions um, and just kind of the typical response from from Hollywood when it comes to moto. You know, there have been many actors and, and A-list celebs that even come to races, and I think they truly enjoy it. But I think there also is this other group of people that just dis- immediately dismiss it as just a, you know, really niche sport and no one cares. And, oh, yeah, all you do is sit on the seat and turn the throttle. Like, how hard that can that be, Right they've never had their eyes open to it by actually trying to do it because that's, we all know that's the immediate shutdown for these people that don't think there's much to it, put them on a bike. And within 30 seconds, their whole world's going to be opened up to the fact that these guys are their heroes for (laughs) what they're capable of doing on those bikes. And I say that as a guy that was finishing, you know, whatever 10th or 12th or whatever, knowing how good James and Ricky were, they would deserve all of the praise that Jimmy Kimmel could have given them. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Now, as to Dr. Papa's specific question, he's asking if I think that Moto and Supercross could ever reach the levels of respect that we see in other countries because 
Dr. Papas, I want to say he's from Guatemala originally, and I could be totally wrong there, but I know we discussed that Guatemalan Supercross, and he was actually there. If you go back in the industry seating archives, you can hear that story. But it, he's right in the fact that in other, in other countries, athletes like this would be much more respected, and the mainstream media would be much more uh, inf- informed, I guess is a good word, of their talent level and their results. And, you know, let's say like Belgium moto is huge in Belgium, right? Everybody knows who Stefan Everts is that that's not even a question. You go to Estonia, everyone knows who the Leak family is. They generational family in Estonia of motocross success, but everybody knows who they are. And that's just how it works over there. Where in America, no one knows, you know, in, in the other sports are front and center. And I think he makes a pretty interesting point here because he says that in other countries, motocross and supercross is considered almost an elitist sport because of the financial inequality that you would see in some, uh, you know, I don't want to say third world countries, but maybe Eastern European or South American or Central American countries where in America, an average family could afford to go racing. Can they go to the highest levels and have a this massive motorhome and pull up to Loretta with five bikes for their son. Maybe not, but they could afford to go racing on some level where in some of these other countries, it's unfathomable. They just have no chance of actually going racing because they can't even dream of having enough money to do that. So his question is, do I see a time when moto will be seen that same way here where it's mainstream and motocross athletes are considered you know, in the same breath of, of like a football sport or baseball sport or basketball. I don't think so. I, I don't know what that would even take. I know a lot of people have tried Feld's tried. Um, you know, every steward of the sport has tried along the way. I just don't think it is ever going to reach that connection point where people can relate to it because most people, let's face it, they haven't ever gone riding at a motocross track. You know, maybe, maybe they've gotten on a motorcycle at some point in in their life, but for this sport to really take hold, everyone would have to go riding at some point so they can understand what that rider is going through and have that, again, that connection point. Because most people in their life have thrown a football around or they've gone to a high school football game or they played football or they played baseball or they played basketball. They have a basketball hoop at their house, right? And that's to me, that's the most fundamental aspect for me. When I watch a football game, I played high school football. I know a little bit about what they're going through. I went through hundreds of football practices and I know the hard work that's put in there and I can understand, you know, defensive pass coverages and offensive plays and how they're drawn up. And I know all these intricacies, which makes the game that much more interesting where motocross, if you've never done it, or you've never even been on a motorcycle, you have zero idea of what it takes. You can't relate to the feeling of riding that motorcycle. The difficulty level doesn't register whatsoever. And I think that's always been the problem. And I think it will continue to be the problem, especially as we've seen, you know, decline in motorcycle sales over the years. Maybe coronavirus helps turn that around as we've seen the power sports industry really booming. But I think on a larger level, that's always going to be the problem is just most people don't connect to it. They don't get it. They don't really understand it. And yes, maybe they're willing to tune in or go to a race just for the, you know, the entertainment or the excitement, because even if you're not a fan of it, watching these guys jump through the air and the crashes and all that, all the exciting things that can happen, 
is enough maybe to hold your attention span for a while, but becoming a true hardcore fan to me is a, is a whole nother topic altogether. And that requires just a, a different level of commitment to tune in week in and week out. So great question. I just think it's a long-term, it's a losing battle to hope we're ever going to get to a mainstream sports level in America. Now, next question is from John, and this is a pretty good question and one we've talked about internally at Fly Racing quite a bit. Now, it's a very long question, so I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but he's asking when we created the Formula Helmet, which you can check out by going to formula.flyracing.com, if we ever considered just doing a an unbranded Formula Helmet that didn't have Fly Racing associated to it at all, and what he's getting at and something we considered were customers that maybe they wore a different gear brand and they were worried about, you know, uh, cross branding. And, and there is that side of the market where they want everything to match and they want to wear the same brand from head to toe. But if they are loyal to a different gear brand, but they believe in the formulas technology and the safety aspect, it's preventative from them buying that formula helmet. And he's not wrong. I'm sure that happens. And really when it came down to it, we felt it was too important to the fly fly racing brand to miss out on the formula being a part of it because it really is our flagship piece. We have over a million dollars of R and D put into that one helmet. So to not capitalize on the word association between the huge leap forward in safety and tech that the formula was and connecting that to fly racing in every aspect, we just felt like we couldn't miss out on that. It was too important and frankly, too great of an opportunity to really take a step forward with the entire brand, just hooking our wagon to what that formula helmet is. Now, the compromise there, which we felt like was a little bit of a middle ground, was on the solid color helmet. So if you look at the solid white and the solid black, the branding is very small. There is a, for 2020, there is just a small fly logo just the word fly on it. And we felt like that was a little bit of a go-between. So if you are that customer that's like, man, I really believe in that helmet and, and what it can do as far as keeping me safer, but you know, I wear some other brand, that could be an opportunity, right? You could put a sticker over it. Or if, if you weren't looking closely, you would never know that it was a fly racing helmet. And that was that was even controversial as well. We had many, many debates over that because that black full carbon one is very, very popular. And we didn't want the most popular helmet to not be branded really well. But that does give you that opportunity to have a less branded helmet and you can buy in, have this, have that helmet, super lightweight, really forward thinking technology, and be very safe without broadcasting that it's a competitive brand's helmet. That, so that that's really where we came down on it. Whether that's right or wrong, who's to say? It's all opinion. But we we did absolutely think of your point here that we wanted to offer an opportunity for other brand, you know, apparel. Maybe they don't even offer a helmet. Maybe it's an off brand in Europe somewhere that they believe in. It's their domestic brand. Like France has all of these domestic brands. But if they wanted to wear a formula helmet because of the innovation, this would give them that opportunity. So great question. Uh, it's one that obviously we thought of, you know, in the end, our owner is so proud of our brand and he has, he's so invested in fly racing and making it 
the best motocross brand period in the world. That's what our end all goal is. And, and make no mistake, that is our goal. He's so invested in that project. He doesn't want to miss out on opportunities to connect the two. He doesn't want to, he, you know, for us to, for people to not know that a formula helmet is a part of fly racing and that team created it. I don't think he was willing to forego that. So we just minimize the branding on the solid helmets as some sort of uh, a neutral way to, to try to accomplish both goals, even if it's not exactly how you're drawing it out, where it would have fly racing not on it at all. Uh, it does give an opportunity for uh, just to minimize it a little bit. So great question there from, uh, from John. Next question is from Joshua, and he's asking a question that I've covered a little bit in the past, but not this specific aspect of it. And he's talking about KTM buying up these brands, right? They bought Husqvarna. They recently purchased Gas Gas, and they're launching that new Gas Gas and racing. And uh, Glenn Koldenhoff will be leading the charge into Latvia next weekend on that new Gas Gas. But he's asking if they could ever consider buying Suzuki's motorcycle division and building a yellow, basically a KTM, right? Whatever that brand would be, I guess it would be, or, or even an orange Suzuki or however you saw that going, they could keep the Suzuki name, but change the plastics and make it basically what KTM has done with a gas gas and a Husky, right? And, and they would take a huge leap forward technologically, but they would have that Suzuki name still to lean on. Now, the only reason I address this question is because I think there's a bigger issue here, and that's understanding how large of a company Suzuki is. Suzuki's very proud brand, and they are massive. When you start thinking about their automobile division, their marine division, they are one of the biggest names in outboard motors for all, all types, types of boats and everything in that particular marine division. It is a huge company. Their automotive side is, is more profitable than ever. And maybe coronavirus set that back a little bit, but I know going into the 2020 calendar year, that was basically their, what they were leaning on was their automotive automotive side was just killing it. And you're, you're talking about, you know, Southeast Asia and mainland Asia, China, all these places where that market is just exploding for them. So for them, the motorcycle side, they probably just shrug their shoulders and I'm sure no department wants to lose money and things that are not profitable are always frowned upon. But in the overall picture, when you're talking about Suzuki Motor Corp overall, and that's such a massive entity just overall, I don't think that the motorcycle side is, I don't think they're that worried about it. And I'm trying to figure out how to phrase that because I'm sure it is a concern. I'm sure there are accountants and upper management is not happy about how it's going but the overall fate of Suzuki is not resting upon whether they sell enough dirt bikes or not. That's my belief. And that's the information I get from going to Japan a couple of times and, and being in meetings with their brass. Now, I think it would be more of a pride thing that they really need to get it together because they've been racing forever. You know, think about their success over the years of, of winning. Like they were, you go back, you know, 30 or 40 years, they were the brand. They were the brand. Suzuki won damn near everything. And then that slowly just kind of fallen off. And then they had that big uprising with Carmichael and they spent a ton of money, you know, in the 05, 06, 07 years. And then it kind of went back downhill. You know, they made another charge at it with James Stewart, which didn't really pan out. And they really didn't innovate the bike during those years either, which has really caught up with them now more than ever. 
but I, I can't imagine a scenario where they would ever consider spinning off. And that's really what it would be. It would be spinning off the motorcycle side. I just, in a million years, no matter how much money they were losing in the motorcycle side, I believe that they are way too proud of the racing heritage and just the Suzuki motorcycle heritage that they would ever even consider doing that. I think they would rather shut it down completely and just never sell another off-road motorcycle ever again before they would ever spin it off to a competitor. You have to understand how proud these Japanese are. And it's, I don't want to say war, that's overstating it. That's hyperbole a little bit, but it is, it's the closest thing to it between the Austrian brands and the Japanese brands. And the Austrian brands are so successful. They're picking a fight. They are not shying away from it. And it'll be interesting to see how Japan responds. I think, you know, you saw, you've seen the resurgence with HRC Honda and the money they've spent and the resources they're throwing at racing. I think they've doubled down and they're back all in. You see Yamaha, they're really pushing their motorcycles forward and say what you want about their American racing program. I think they're really trying, you know, and they're obviously their 250 racing program is lights out. They win a ton and everyone kind of considers that Yamaha 250F to be the best bike in the market. And a lot of people consider the stock YZF 450 to be the best bike in the market. It just seems like the racing aspect of the 450 has been under a little bit of pressure. So yeah, good question. And I really wanted to address it because I think there's so much more to it that, you know, Suzuki in general would never consider it first. They don't, their financial success is not based off of motorcycles in any way. It's just not large enough to affect them big picture. And then secondarily to that, they're way too proud to ever even consider selling that brand, especially to the Austrians, because that's really where the tension comes in is, uh, you know, KTM has come in and, and really taken over and now they're doing it with Husky. They're winning races and now they're expanding into gas gas. So they've drawn a line into the sand and it's going to be interesting to watch how the, the Japanese brands respond to the pressure and just the aggression that the Austrians have shown. Now the last question and the winner of the fly racing formula helmet is Michael McGuire. And he asked a few questions in here, but it was really the first one that I latched onto and, and I thought a lot about it. And I just thought it was interesting because I think some guys battle with this more than I did. I think it's a little bit of a unique situation for each rider and some people can handle it better than others and understand the situation and move forward. Now, what he's asking is, you know, back in my racing days, I wrote, I was very fortunate. I got to ride with honestly, the best riders in the world, going back to Tim Ferry and Sebastian Tortelli and Chad Reed and all the guys in Florida, Grant Langston. And there were just so many guys around that I got to ride with. I was very fortunate in that aspect. And even, you know, when guys would come down and test with Chad, I would get to ride with them, Davey Millsaps and all these guys, they were always around and we would just be motoing. Um, Michael Byrne, Brett Metcalf. I just go through the list of guys. I rode practice with Ricky Carmichael when I was still an amateur Ezra Lusk. I mean, it just, it's crazy to think about the talent that I got to watch on a daily basis and practice with. And yeah, they were smoking me. And that's kind of where we're going with this question is he's asking, how could you maintain any confidence level riding with those guys? And obviously they would beat me pretty badly, but how could you keep going? And, and when you wake up every day, have any confidence level about what you were going to be able to accomplish on race day knowing how much better those guys were. And I think that's really where you have to be realistic 
and you have to make realistic goals and be very aware of the situation that you're in. And I would really kind of compartmentalize the groups of racers that I was battling with. Now, if you're thinking about Chad and Timmy and Carmichael and all those guys, I really wasn't racing against those guys in my mind. Yes, of course. I was lined up right next to them. And when the gate drops, we're all racing against each other. But in practical terms, I really wasn't racing against them. I wasn't going to see Carmichael throughout the moto. And, you know, in in an outdoor moto, I wasn't going to see Tortelli on an outdoor moto, maybe in a supercross race because he wasn't all that much better than me. But in an outdoor moto, those guys were gone. I didn't even think about them. I wasn't worried about them. When I was doing my training, those weren't the guys I was focused on. And you think about it, you know, no matter what you're working on, if, if you're competitive, you have somebody in the back of your mind that you want to beat. And that's why your work, you work harder. And that's why you put in those last few miles of running or last few laps of riding is because I need to beat that guy. They weren't the guys I was worried about beating because they were too good. The gap was too big. It was not a realistic goal for me to worry about those guys. So for, for those guys to beat me day in and day out, I expected it. I knew that was going to happen. It was really about learning from them and how can I close incrementally close that gap and what can I take from their program and their talent and their skill level and all the things they've learned and apply it to my game. And am I going to get all the way up to them? Am I going to just, you know, fill this incredible talent gap? Of course not. That That wasn't realistic. And I knew that. And once you can swallow that, and utilize it and just be like, okay, don't get upset. Don't get mad. Don't take it personally that they're so much better. Use it and allow them to teach you how to be your best self. Because if you're comparing yourself to someone else all the time, that's going to be an incredibly frustrating dynamic, especially when you're talking about the level that those guys were on. You have to compare it to yourself. And I would be like, okay, we've been, we're working through preseason, all this prep and, and, building your fitness base and doing all these things. And I'm talking about October, November. And I would look back and, okay, am I better than I was a month ago? Have I improved my skill set? Have I gotten my bike better? Have I been able to learn any of the techniques that these guys use? Can I implement them into my game to make myself better? And if I'm getting better, that's all you can really ask for. Don't worry about what they're doing. Worry about what you're doing. And if you get better and you're week over week, month over month, you're better then that's going to show up on race day. So I think he makes a great point that it is difficult to remain mentally strong and confident when you're just getting pounded on day after day. And that, that absolutely happened. And if you know, Chad Reed at all, or you know about him, he's ruthless. He would just drill me about getting smoked sometimes, not all the time. If he knew I was really down in the dumps about how things were going, he would recognize it and, and, pick me up or, or try to build my confidence up a little bit. But if it was just a normal day, oh, he would just, just hammer me about how bad I suck and why am I still doing this? And I need to go find a job and blah, blah, blah. He's kidding, of course, but that's, you'd have to know Chad for one and then know Australians for two. They, that's how they communicate is they just make fun of each other and generally just berate each other. Um, but I, I do think it, it helped me because it makes you very resilient. You know, if you can just continually get your confidence beaten down every day and bounce back from that and wake up on race day and think, okay, I'm going to go be my best self today. I think that really prepares you for other walks of life too. And you 
begin to understand how to rely on yourself and make the best of other situations. An important factor in that is knowing who you're racing against. And I would kind of have a range, right? The, the upper range of the guys that I was trying to beat would, I would say Nick way, right? He was better than me, beat me my whole life. I did beat him sometimes. I can name off a few times where I just straight up beat him, but that was not commonplace. He was better than I was. He, his results were better. He had a better ride than I did. His bike was better. He made more money than I did. And all of that was exactly how it was supposed to be. He finished in front of me and his talent level was higher. And, and I don't know that he worked harder than me, but he damn sure worked hard. There's no doubt about that. And he earned every single thing that he ever got, but he was the guy that I really wanted to get up there and battle with. And and it was always that carrot dangling out in front of me. And we were super close friends too. So it wasn't a, there wasn't a negative tone to me trying to beat him. It was just, I knew what the salary he was getting and the equipment he was getting and the finishes he was getting. And I really wanted that. I wanted to get up there and and get those things and earn those things. Now, if you're talking about guys that I raced all the time and we battled and I really wanted to beat that guy, I would say Ryan Clark was right in that range. And Ryan Clark was sneaky. Good. He wouldn't impress you with style or really any of those things, raw speed or anything. But if you looked at his results over the years, they were much better than you may think. Uh, I was watching a race the other day. I believe it was 2005 Las Vegas Supercross. And he ran fourth for most of that damn main event. And he was just sneaky good that way. You wouldn't really think much of him. And then you look up for the results and he was eighth place. He was ninth place. He was just a much better racer than I think he got credit for. And it, he just kind of flew under the radar most years. But he was a guy where if I was didn't feel like doing the work that day. I didn't want to get beat by Ryan Clark. I wanted to beat him every single time. And we shared a lot of the same sponsors, fly racing sponsor, both of us. We were competing for a lot of the same accolades and a lot of the same rides, you know, and when money was up for grabs, we were, we both wanted the same position. And he was a guy that drove me to be a little bit better because I did not want to get beat by him. So for me, learning from the best, the best riders there were and taking what they had to offer, not getting discouraged from the fact that they were a lot better than me. And then applying that to my compartmentalized race. And when I say compartmentalized race, I mean, okay, the race from sixth place to 15th place. Those are the guys I was really battling against, you know, the upper end of my finishes. I, my best ever Lucas oil pro motocross race was fifth overall. Right. So I, I knew that was about as good as it was ever going to get. So just worry about those guys. Forget about Carmichael and Tortelli and Ferry and those guys, which in that fifth place, I did beat Tim Ferry straight up, but that was like the best day ever. But most of the time I was, I didn't care what those guys were doing. And the last thing I was going to do was get discouraged that they were a lot better than me. I knew that going in. I I woke up every day, every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and, and got that drilled into me. I was worried about Ryan Clark and Nick Way and Clark Styles and Joe Aloff and take your pick. There was a ton of guys in the, you know, off and on Sean Hamlin's and all those guys that were really, really good riders. And if you weren't on your a game, they were going to smoke you. Kyle Lewis, another guy there just, you know, I raced for 16 years. So there was a lot of guys that came and went and that would vary a little bit. There were the mainstays, which I kind of named, but then there would be guys that would come in and out of the fray. You know, Jeff Gibson was very good there for a few years. So it always kind of rotated who you were worried about, you know, Weston Pike's rise, in you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, he was a guy that you had to worry about. Josh Summy 
going back to like 06, 07, 08, he was a guy that you had to deal with all the time. So those are the guys that really drove me. Um, but to specifically answer the question, I didn't care that those guys were so much better. I knew there was nothing I could do about that. And it's, you know, Chris Betts has been on the Pulp and Mech show a ton. And if you listen, you listen to this show, you probably listen to that show. It's just how these things work. You know, he's a minor league baseball player, super talented. You know, he's a first round draft pick in uh draft a few years ago. And the talent to accomplish anything like that is unbelievable. Well, you think about the difference between him and then like an all-star level catcher, both hitting and position playing in the field. Yeah, it's a pretty big gap, right? He, But I, I would bet you that he understands that he's not the best hitter in baseball, right? He's, he's a very talented baseball player, and that's why he's in the position he's in. That's why he got a huge signing bonus coming right out of school. But he's not going to be in the All-Star game next summer either. And I think that's a realization you just have to be mindful of and you have to keep things in perspective otherwise you just go to overwhelmed by the fact that you're not you're not the best in the world maybe yet right and and I think being realistic and keeping perspective and not getting discouraged but also seeing that there's a, a huge opportunity to improve and learn from those around you is is really the key to that so congrats Michael on winning this helmet um and and I really had to think about the question and think about go back all those years and put myself back in those shoes, waking up every morning in Tampa and going out to go practicing and think about what I was focused on in my training and who I wanted to be. And you know, some of those days, man, it's, it is really hot and humid, especially in the summer in Florida. And you've been motoring all day. And then, you know, you have like this run you have to do, or this bicycle ride in the afternoon. And you do, you want to do anything on earth besides go do that. It is so miserable and you're just beat down in your boot camp training, and you know you have to go do it anyway because in the back of your mind, you're thinking, God, I know Ryan Clark is in Phoenix where he lived, and he's out there just pounding away right now. I know he's running. It's 110 degrees where he's at, and I can just picture him doing some trail run right now in the heat and getting better, and he's going to use that that confidence he's from putting in all that hard work, and he's going to show up at Anaheim, and he's going to freaking beat me and I'm going to be pissed off. So I'm going to go do the work right now because I want to beat him. And that that's just the kind of things you have to to draw from. And worrying about the fact that Chad Reed was going to beat me at Anaheim 1, yeah, so what? I, I knew that already. And on a bigger picture, if you think about the way that training partners are really drawn up, and you go back to you know Ryan Villapoto and Jake Weimer, that's why that worked. Myself and all those guys I listed, you know, Chad Reed being the last of those, we were training partners exclu- almost exclusively for years. Michael Byrne came in the last couple of years there as well. But you have this rider A and rider B, and there's an understanding there that, you know, the rider A is in kind of in his own world and rider B isn't really competitive with him. So rider A can open up and not be protective and not hide secrets and show him his training tactics and all the things that he's using to prepare because in the end, on a practical level, they're not really competing against each other. Big picture, they are, right? If you're just looking at a results page, of course they are. But when you really dive deep into it on the, on the micro level, they're not really. And they both know they're not. And that's why the teams hired them. And that's why they get paid what they do. Because they're really not expected 
to compete with each other week in and week out. You know, they're, they're really on different talent levels and ability levels. So I think that's just an understanding that has to go on. And it, it, it does kind of suck. If you're the subservient one in that partnership, I think really the only silver lining is that you're getting to learn from someone a lot better than you. And, and you have to view that as a huge opportunity to make yourself a lot better and, and feed off of that and, and just make the most of, you know, being the, the second tier of that relationship, because it's, you could be left out in the cold. You could go practice by yourself and not have someone a lot better than you and not have this beautiful riding facility that's manicured every day and all these great, uh, benefits that are at your disposal, all that could be taken away and you go ride by yourself and you'll be the fastest person every time you go riding, but you know what? You're not going to get much better and you're going to ride on crappy tracks and you're not going to get to see what it takes to go to the next level. So again, great question. Thank you to everybody for listening this week. Thank you to all the sponsors. We're almost back to racing. I am really excited. At least we'll have MXGP to talk about next weekend. So that'll be fun. We'll be back into at least some sort of motocross racing. The first return round of MXGP will cover MotoGP a little bit. I got a couple requests for that and I won't deep dive too much because I know this is a supercross and motocross specific podcast, but I do want to touch on it a tiny bit for those of you who are out there listening for it. And if, if you don't like it, that's okay. There's a fast forward button, but thank you again. I hope everybody's staying safe. Sports are kicking back off and our sport is about to do the same thing. Talk to you soon. See ya. Stay.